Well, good evening, good evening. You know, somebody came up to me during the greet time and said, you're not going to believe what happened to me this week, which I love every story that starts that way. And uh, it's their, they're newer to the church and they were, this is their first time participating in, in Faith Promise, which is the part of missions giving again, where, you know, you pray, God gives you a number. It's not a pledge. You don't put your name on the card. It's different from the monthly commitment. And, and you trust that God's going to provide that number. And when he does, you make a promise that you'll give it to, uh, Faith, to, to our missions fund, you know, as it comes in. And so uh, they came up and they said, you know, my wife and I, we've been ever since you announced that we've been praying and talking, and uh, but we had not decided on what that number was going to be. And uh, and then he said, uh, just the other day, uh, his his wife comes bursting into the room where where he's in, and she says, "You're not. We we just got a check that showed up in the mail, and they hadn't even filled in their card yet." So, right, God's given them the check to give to Faith Promise before they turn the card in to be a part of the program. And so, you know, it's just, this is what God does. We're just telling you, if, if you will step into a conversation with him, not just about Faith Promise, but about every aspect of your life, what we're saying is he's going to show up. He's an active voice and a living a living presence. And so, Father, I just pray for people that are here tonight that are just, they're trying to figure out, are you real? And if you're real, do you still talk to people? Or do you just talk to other people you don't talk to me? What did, what did I do to deserve this feeling of being distanced? Well, I pray that you would break in on their world, just as Vanessa already prayed. We, we pray that people would be overwhelmed by your love tonight. Awaken them to your presence. Awaken them to the belief in the dream that you have a plan and purpose for them. Awaken them to the belief that you have the ability to heal every brokenness in every part of their heart. Awaken them to believe that you have a word that you want to whisper in their ear that can be the foundation of the rest of their life. In Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said. Well, welcome tonight to Pentecost postponed no longer. We've been trying to get to this message for several weeks, but uh, uh, we come into every week with a plan, but we also come with a heart that says, God, have your way. And, uh, and so we've been trying to hit this since December, and here we are. And, uh, and so this, the uh, last two parts of this Holy, the Holy Spirit series that we started uh, back as we came into Christmas, I'm going to do uh, Pentecost part one tonight, uh, and then uh, uh, Pastor David and Steve Ruggiero are going to be sharing for the next couple of weeks, and then I'll come back and do Pentecost part two uh, at the, uh, in the beginning uh, in the beginning of, of March. So, hey, let me just mention a name because I'm going to reference uh, one of the things that he teaches in a little bit. There's, there's a guy named Larry Kreider, K-R-E-I-D-E-R. Uh, he's got a, a series out there called a Biblical Foundation Series. If you're looking for something, it's 12 little booklets. Uh, it's, great, it's great material. It's great teaching. Uh, it's designed for you to either use it in your personal life. It can be for small groups. Uh, it, it can be for a, a sermon series. Uh, but, it, but it really walks you through just a lot of biblical foundations. I'm going to reference him tonight, but I also wanted to just reference that uh, resource that, that uh, he has available. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Uh, the writer of Hebrews here is saying, uh, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. So we know he's, he's getting ready to talk about some things that are just supposed to be fundamental, meaning things that we should already understand and know. 
The writer says, let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding, right? Let's not just stay in the fundamentals. Let's have an appetite for the deeper things of God. So then he gives us some examples. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance. And here's the list. Repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God, You don't need further instruction about baptisms. Notice it's plural. I'm going to talk about that. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The writer of Hebrews is saying, if you look at these six, these are fundamental, just basic principles of Christianity. This word baptism, which is in the list of six, is a unique word in the Greek language, and it means to be made fully wet. Now, it's used oftentimes in reference to an encounter with water. I'm going to to talk about that in just a minute. But it's also used poetically. It's also used metaphorically for any situation in any circumstance in any experience where you're supposed to be fully immersed in something. It it, it means that, that, that when... If you're baptized into something that you give yourself to it fully and completely, there's no halfway. There's no halfway. It's plural because God is trying to help us to understand that the Bible actually speaks of many different kinds of baptisms. Larry Kreider, and I agree with him, says that there are four unique ones. The first one, I'm just going to reference it if you're a note taker. Again, the PDF is online every week. Uh, If we move faster than you would prefer, if you're taking notes, you can always download that PDF and all these textual references are in there. It's Colossians 2.12, talks about baptism in water. Now, that's the one that most people are familiar with. It uses this concept of being fully immersed because when you're baptized in water, it's because you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and you're saying you want your life to be fully immersed as a disciple of Christ. There's the baptism into the body of Christ that the Apostle Paul uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's also used in other places in the New Testament. Why is this word baptism used in reference to people becoming a part of the church family? Because when you become a part of a church family, you should be fully immersed in that family. You shouldn't just be casual. You shouldn't just show up every now and again. You shouldn't just receive. You should participate in every way. You should immerse yourself into the community of faith. Matthew 3, 11 through 12, which is a text I think that's often misunderstood, John the Baptist talks about a baptism of fire. Now, many people confuse that with John the Baptist talking about what's going to come in Acts chapter 2, but that's in other portions of Scripture. Here, when John talks about that we'll be baptized in fire, he's actually talking about suffering. John the Baptist is saying that it's part of God's plan for us in this life that we're going to suffer. Why? Because suffering builds character. And as we talk about, as we're building a series that we're going to get into later in this year, it also prepares us for eternity. It's a baptism in fire. If you've ever been in that, you know exactly what that feels like. If you've not felt it, it's coming for you. Have hope. There's seasons in life, right, where you just feel like you're immersed. No matter where you turn, things are just falling apart. But then there's a fourth one. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, Acts 1-5. And that's going to be our focus in this message and the one that comes in a few weeks. There are many different kinds of baptisms. In fact, there are four. Each one is unique, and each one is uniquely supernatural. 
Now, this is important because sometimes we lose our sense of an experience in Christianity as being supernatural because it's become familiar. If, if you were to show up, if, if you were, and we do, right, there's a bapti- uh, baptismal right there, and we use it as part of our services or in special services. That's one of the things we love about this building, being able to have water baptisms as part of our worship experience. If you've never been water baptized, we love to talk to you because we've got one coming up, and so we, we would love for you to be a part of that. And if you were to be a part of that because you've never been water baptized before, if you were to go to work that following day and you were to say to a friend at work, hey, I got baptized at my church this weekend, Even if they're not religious, you know what? They're not going to see that as being strange because it's a familiar concept, even though it's deeply supernatural. If if you were to say to somebody, hey, that church I've been visiting, whether it's this church or some other church, you know, I I think that's the church. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to join it. Even if they're not a religious person, you know, they're, they're probably not going to think that's odd because it's familiar, even though it's deeply supernatural. If you were having a conversation with someone at your job and your life is just a wreck and a mess and they know that your life is a wreck and a mess and you were to say something to the effect of, you know what, it's just like I'm just immersed in pain and suffering. They would say, I know, your life sucks. I'm glad it's yours and not mine, right? But they're not going to think of it as being supernatural even though it is, because God uses suffering to transform and change us. And the reason they don't think of it as being supernatural is because it's familiar. But if you were to come to say one of our encounter nights, which we have multiple times throughout the year where the worship team is just tasked with two straight hours of worship and we pray and we come to the altar. We have people available to, to minister to people. It's just immersing ourselves in two hours of just basking in God's presence. If you were to come out of that and show up at work and say, you know what? The most incredible thing happened to me the other night at church. I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and actually spoke in a spiritual language. You know what they're going to say? Whoa, hey! Don't get too crazy here, right? This sounds a little strange to me. And you know why it's strange? Because it's unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar. There's so many things in Scripture that that we've lost our sense of how supernatural they are because they've become all too familiar. And then there's other things in Scripture because they're unfamiliar. We don't even want to think about the idea of that supernatural experience being for us because we're suspicious of it. Let me share this thought with you. We must be careful to distinguish between something that deserves our suspicion because it is suspect. And something that makes us uncomfortable simply because it is unfamiliar. Now, there are times where you should be suspicious of things that happen in churches. I'm not saying that everything that happens in a church that's unfamiliar to you doesn't warrant some suspicion. Because sometimes unhealthy churches do suspect things. I'm not saying follow people blindly. But what I am saying is make sure that you've got a filter. And that filter is asking the question, am I uncomfortable because it is suspect or am I uncomfortable because it is unfamiliar? 
And if you're uncomfortable because it is unfamiliar, then let that feeling of discomfort give way to a feeling of curiosity that gives way to a prayer that says to God, God, I want to have everything that you have for me this side of heaven. Pentecost. In order to understand what happened in Acts 1 and 2 and 3, you got to go back to the life of Christ and you have to start by looking at two of his declarative statements. Now, declarative statements are the statements that Jesus gives as to why he came. And there are a few of them in Scripture, but the two most prominent, one is found in Luke 19.10 where he says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. If you've been around church for any amount of time, that's not unfamiliar to you. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's one of his declarative statements. Why are you here? I came to seek and save the lost. Another one is found in Matthew 16.18 where he said that he came to build his church. In Luke 19.10, it says, for the Son of Man, right, he's speaking of himself, came to seek and save those who were lost. Matthew 16, 18, now I say to you that you are Peter. He uses the word petros, which means rock. And upon this rock, he changes it to petra. That's another sermon for another time, but that play on words is instructive. He says, I, and, and upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. He's got two distinct declarative statements that are supposed to be working in concert with each other to seek and save the lost, and to build his church. Now these are important as we begin to try to understand Pentecost because in Acts 1, 1 through 15, which we're going to read, Jesus, in effect, told his followers, before you go and try to do those things, you need to wait for something else to happen. See, when Jesus gives a declarative statement, he's saying, this is why I came And if you are going to be my disciple, then you better make sure that it's why you're here also. So Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. So if you're going to be a disciple, seeking and saving the lost better be just as important to you as it is to me. When he says, I've come to build my church, it means he's saying to everyone who wants to be a disciple of Christ, who becomes a follower of Christ, he's saying to us, building my church better be just as important to you as it is to me. But then we get to Acts, right? There's his death, there's his resurrection, there is his ascension, and he says, hey, don't try to do any of that stuff that I told you to do yet, because there's something else that you need. Acts 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, this is Luke, the gospel writer of Luke. This is like Luke part two. About everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse six, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free and free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Right? He's saying, don't change the subject, people. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right? Telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. Paul later references in his letter to the church of Corinth, he references this and he says there's over 500 people there on that day. And while they were watching, they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them, right? The implication is these are angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Right? And they're going, wow, because Jesus just rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. This is what people do. We stare at stuff. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. But someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. What, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, don't, don't just stand around here and talk about what happened. He's giving you some instructions. Go do it. Go back to Jerusalem, into the city, and wait. Something's coming for you. If we're not careful, we will always, as Christians, live in the past looking at what happened as opposed to getting a vision for the more of God in our tomorrows. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Then he gives us a list of those who were there. I'm going to jump down to verse 15. During this time when about 120 believers were gathered, we've talked about this before. That's curious, isn't it? Where in the heck were the other 380? Paul tells us there were over 500 people there on that day, but only 120 are there. See, there's a difference between just being in the crowd and being baptized into the community of the church. Don't just be an onlooker. Be all in. 120 believers were together in one place. Peter stood up and addressed them. I'm going to skip over this, and he talks about their need to have a, another person brought in because Judas has, has failed. I'm going to jump down to verse 21. It says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men. And then they go on through a process and they pick a man by the name of Matthias. They cast lots, it says, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. I'm reading you all this because this is important. When you're waiting on God, it's not permission for inactivity. It's not permission to just say, you know what? If God says he's going to do something, I'm just going to sit here and wait. No, no, no. There are, there's, there's things, there's activity, and we can be productive in things even though we're expectant for something more. And this is on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring and a mighty windstorm. Oh, come on. And it filled the house where they were sitting. All right, that's for two weeks. It's so good. It's important, these feasts that are mentioned, because there is a time stamp that is associated with them that gives us an historical context to understand what's happening. The Feast of Pentecost was a very distinct time of celebration for the Jewish people. It's called Pentecost. Penta means 50 because it occurred 50 days after Passover. Jesus' death and resurrection was during the Feast of Passover. The text has already told us that he appeared to the believers for 40 days. All of these numbers are given to us so that we can understand what's happening. 40 days. And then he ascended to heaven. 
right? And then the text picks up and says that on the day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was poured out, which is 50 days after. So all those word problems that youth needed to learn when you were in grade school that you thought you would never need, right? The train that left Boston at a certain time, it was to prepare you for faith in Christ. That might be enough of you to forsake your faith right there. Ascended on day 40, Pentecost is on day 50. It means that these 120 waited for 10 days. I think that's why there's 120 and not 500. I think there was probably a lot more on day 40 and then a lot less on 41 all the way to 50 because people grow impatient for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Jesus' death occurred during Passover. Jesus died at Passover and the church was birthed at Pentecost because both of these feasts prophetically parallel the two declarative statements of Christ of coming to seek and save the lost and coming to build his church. Jesus died during the feast of Passover because the very first Passover was one of the greatest prophetic declarations of how God was going to make possible for people to be forgiven and for our relationship with him to be restored. When they were slaves in Egypt and all the plagues that came, right, the final one was when the death angel came and took the firstborn, but the death angel passed over, right, hence the feast Passover, passed over every house that had the lamb that was slain and the blood on the doorpost, right? These are prophetic pictures of Jesus Christ being the lamb of God that's slain for the world. Jesus died at Passover because he was the fulfillment of, of the entire sacrificial system that God had set up through the Mosaic law for vicarious death and redemption. That whole system of sacrifice that the Jewish people were tasked with carrying to be a prophetic story, because God's always telling a story, and that story always comes to the same two conclusions, is that he wants to rescue and redeem you for the eternity that he has waiting for you. And so this entire system of sacrifice was designed to say someone has to die for sin. And he told us that for hundreds of years because he wants to make sure we get it. But it's not just about someone having to die. It's also about him saying to the world, and I'm the only one who can grant you the forgiveness that you need. So when we talk about Jesus being the, overway, the only way, it's not because we're doctrinally arrogant. It's because we're just reflecting what God says throughout Scripture. Is that salvation can only come through his hand, and his hand came to us through Christ. He tells the disciples to wait before they try to proclaim the gospel to the world. Listen to this. Because in order for the message to be effectual, they needed power. He didn't just want it to be information. He wanted it to be impartation. 
And in order for the message that Jesus saves to go beyond information into the realm of impartation, where it actually changes hearts, the message has to come through the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus himself said that no one can call Jesus Lord but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't come to educate us. He came to rescue us and transform us. Do you find it interesting, because I do, that they did not begin to preach the message of Jesus saves until Acts 2.14? Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you. The first sermon of the first church 2,000 years ago. Do you think Peter knew that Jesus saved? You better believe he did because when you get to John 20, 22, post-resurrection experience, Jesus says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to be getting into that in a few weeks. They knew that Jesus saved. They knew why Jesus came. But they knew they could not walk in the fulfillment of acting upon the message that they themselves had to bring, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. They couldn't begin the work of seeking to save the lost because they understood. They had the information, but they did not yet have the power. The church was birthed during Pentecost. Jesus' second declarative statement. Why was the church birthed there? Well, there's a reason. The Feast of Pentecost primarily was about the celebration and the recognition of the giving of the law because the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai was given 50 days after their exodus. The first Passover, right? They travel, they're in the wilderness. 50 days, they come to Sinai. God gives the law for the very first time. So Pentecost, in part, is a celebration of the giving of the law 50 days After the first Passover, God picked this feast for a reason. Many of us, we've heard a million times, which just been, we've explained tonight about Jesus being the fulfillment of Passover, but 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 it escapes us why the church was birthed at Pentecost. Now we're gonna do a deep dive here, so take a deep breath. In autumn, for the Jewish people, they would plant both the barley and the wheat at the same time. Same time. The barley was harvested during the time of Passover. The wheat was harvested during the time of Pentecost. Both planted at the same time, but one germinated a little bit faster than the other. Now, if you're like me, You're of the persuasion and the belief that everything God created was to point us to his plan, which is to save us and to prepare us for the heaven that awaits for us. Where do we get that from? In the first chapter of Romans, Paul writes that no person, when, when, we, when, we, when this world comes to an end and we're, we're, we're all standing before God, Paul says no, no person is going to have an excuse. No person is going to be able to say that there was no God because Paul says even the natural world, just that alone is enough to declare that he exists. You think it's an accident that when God created barley and wheat that he created it that way? No, 
He knew what he was doing. It's part of his story. It's part of his story because he's trying to help us to understand that when the church is birthed, when the church is birthed, it's supposed to be filled with a diverse people. It's not just for the Jewish people, even though the Jewish people had a sacred special assignment. We got into that last week. I'm not going to reteach all of that. But they were carrying the message of a Messiah. But then that Messiah, that message was supposed to go to the whole world. The law was given just to the Jewish people. There was an exclusivity. But at the point Christ came as the fulfillment of the law, that exclusivity went away. And now it's inclusive for everyone who will accept him. The reason why the barley and the wheat are so significant is because the barley represents the Jewish people in the sense that the church was birthed with them because they had a basis of understanding for what Jesus was about because their entire culture was about proclaiming the coming of a Messiah. It's why when Paul traveled around the world on his missionary journeys, he always went to the synagogue first. Why? Because it's the barley. It germinates faster. They had a basis of understanding his message because their whole society and culture was steeped in the idea of a Messiah would one day come and save the world. The wheat, it's a little slower. That's the rest of us. Why is that? Because when they begin to talk about all of these concepts with the Gentile world, it was confusing to them. It was foreign to them. But God still wanted all of them to be a part of the church too. Have you ever noticed that in the parables of Christ, he talks about the wheat? Why does he talk about that? Why does he talk about the barley? He talks about the wheat because the wheat represents everyone not just one group of people. The church was birthed at Pentecost during the harvest of the wheat because the harvest of the barley had already taken place. Now it's the time of the harvest of the wheat because God is saying to the world, I gave you the understanding of the Messiah so that you could then share that understanding with the rest of the world because the only way that my church is going to be built and should be built is with the rest of the world, not just you who have walked with me from the days of Abraham. It's time for everyone to be invited in. It's time for the harvest. Jesus didn't want the church to be birthed at his resurrection because if the church had been birthed at his resurrection, listen to me, it would have been exclusively Jewish. And he wanted the church to be exclusively worldwide. He wanted it to be for everyone. Just as I said, because the message to be effectual, they needed power. Listen to me. In order for the church to be diverse, they needed a display. They needed a display. Every people group in the history of the world suffers from one similar problem a sense of superiority. We do. It's part of the nature of our humanity. 
There's something inside of us that longs to be superior over other people. It's part of the brokenness of who we are. And so we look for ways to to posture and position ourselves as being above other people. Every people group suffers from this. And we suffer from it today. That was a part of last week's. If you really want to decide whether or not you want to be a part of this church, you should listen to last week's message. I'm just saying. Both Pastor Fred and Just Fred talked last week. So you might say, Fred, what are you you talking about? They needed to display. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Acts 10, 1 through 18. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel, right? This is a Gentile, not a Jew. And he saw an angel of God commanding him, Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Come on, faith promise, 2019. Then send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. As soon as the the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Verse 9. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray about noon, and he He was hungry, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. Pastor Justin talked about this in our anniversary service. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds, and a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean, but the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Three's a pattern for Peter, if you know what I'm talking about. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven, and Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? And just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked if a man named Simon Peter was standing there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them, right? This is important because at this point, the Jewish people are killing Christians. They're trying to put down this new movement. These men are just showing up with this story of God sent us, right? So God knows that he's going to be suspicious. He doesn't want him to be suspect. He wants him to be curious, and so he speaks to his heart. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? And then they tell the story. I'm not going to keep reading it for sake of time. You, you can. It's an, it's an amazing story. He goes with Cornelius and they have church in Cornelius' house. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all of those people. Poured out on all of those people who are Gentiles. Why is that important? Because... Jesus had two declarative statements. He came to seek and save the lost, and he came to build his church. 
The message came through the Jewish nation, but it was supposed to be given to the whole world. But if you do a careful study of Acts 2 to 10, what you find is the early church is not doing a very good job of taking that message to other people outside of the culture that is familiar to them. In fact, at this point, you could say in Acts 10 that the church is terribly homogeneous. It looks like everybody is the same. And God is saying, no, 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 no. This is for the whole world. It's not just for the barley, it's for the wheat. But they were steeped in centuries of culture that it was for them. It was for them, but it was for them to give to the rest of the world. And God knew that something was going to need to happen in order to give them the revelation that it was for other people. And the revelation was going to come through a display. And the display was going to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people that they thought didn't deserve it. Because as you continue to read, which we don't have time to do tonight, through the rest of the book of Acts, you find people coming and saying, hey, this isn't for everyone. Well, it can be, but then they've got to adopt all of our practices if they want to be a part. So God, he puts on a display. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on people that don't practice and believe the same things that all of these people who the Holy Spirit's already been poured out on the things that they do. So that these people are now forced to look at those people and say, hmm, huh, hmm. Hmm. What's going on over here? <laughs> 2,000 years later, we're still doing it today. We're still doing it today. This church, that church, this party, that party, this ethnicity, that ethnicity, you know what we tend to do? If you don't practice it the way we practice it, if you don't understand it the way we understand it, if you want to really be a part of what God's doing, then you've got to be just like us. But you know what God is still doing? He's still putting some things on display. So that if you were to spend some time, and if you need help with it, we can make some suggestions for you for where to go to immerse yourself maybe in an environment, maybe in a church that doesn't necessarily believe everything that you believe about lots of different things, you should go so that you can see the display. The display of God moving in their midst just like he's moving in our midst. God changing people's lives here just as he's changing people's lives that you would expect him to. Part of the reason why the church was birthed at Pentecost is because God's plan was for the church to be diverse. And as we talked about last week, that we have a responsibility to not make it harder than we're supposed to. Should there be boundaries of belief? Yes. Should there be boundaries of practice? Yes. But let's make sure the boundaries are boundaries that God actually gives and not boundaries that we impose because of our own selfish need to feel superior to other people. The message, in order to be effectual, it needs power. The church, in order to be diverse, it needed a display. And so God gave one that they could not explain away. 
he poured out his spirit on all flesh. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We love teaching about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual language. I try to do it at least once a year. Typically, we do it multiple times a year. We do it multiple times a year because it's, it's, these are texts that are often left out or they're texts that I would humbly say are mistaught. Why are they left out? Why are they mistaught? Well, Max Lucado has a great answer. Boxed-sized gods. You'll find them in the tight grip of people who prefer a God they can manage and control and predict. This topsy-turvy life requires a tame deity, doesn't it? A world out of control. We need a God we can control. A comforting presence akin to a lap dog or a kitchen cat. We call, he comes. We pet, he purrs. If we can just keep God in his place. We don't want to keep God in his place. We don't. We don't want to create a box and try to fit God into it. We want to be a church that inspires you to believe that God is someone that we can trust even when we don't understand him. And that we come into these weekend services ultimately with the same cry. God, have your way. Do your work. And in times where we don't understand, times when, 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 when maybe you're doing something that is unfamiliar, help us to not be suspect. Help us to gain a comfort level with being uncomfortable because we want to experience everything that you have for us this side of heaven. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, just as a capstone for everything that you've been doing in people's lives, not just tonight, but for some people you've been doing a work in their life for weeks. For some people, tonight's the culmination of a work that you've been doing in them for years. Have your way. And find us, above all else, to be a people. To be a people that seek and save the lost and build your church. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Let's worship together.